Hello everyone, welcome to Black Op Radio, this is your host Leno Sanic. I'm joined with Jim DiEugenio and Mr. Morris Wolf from Florida. Good evening both of you. Nice Good to evening. be here. Good. Why don't you start off, Jim? Okay, yeah, I'll be glad to. I, I met Morris at the Pittsburgh Conference, Cyril Weck's 60th anniversary. He did a small speech in tribute to Cyril, and then later, me, him, and Andrew we're at the Cambria Hotel and we had a few drinks, okay, at the bar. And Andrew told me, why don't you pick up his book and interview him? Okay. So I said, well, that's a pretty good idea. Okay. <laughs> so excellent idea. Yeah. And so I did. I ordered his book and I have to hit the name of his book is called Lucky Conversations Visits with the Most Prominent People of the 20th Century. That is only a slight exaggeration because this, the, the, guys, this, the guys and women that Morris has talked to in his life is really, is really kind of startling. De Klerk and Mandela, all right, to start it off. Adlai Stevenson is another one. Eleanor Roosevelt is another one. And I go on and on because uh, his book has about, I'd say at the very least, 25 to 30 chapters and all of them almost all of them are these momentous conversations he had with these rather famous people and i can give you another example adley stevenson all right so i guess the best way to start this off is to say see this show tries to concentrate on the assassinations of the 1960s and morris has had relationships with some people for example Arlen Specter, another one JFK, another one Bobby Kennedy, another one Malcolm X. And these are all described in the book. But let's start at the beginning, since I since I read the whole book. Morris, and this is very interesting, he had a meeting at eight years old with Carl Sandburg. Why don't you describe that, Morris? That was a wonderful reward weekend. I was one of four boys and a girl, and my parents would reward us for good behavior, sometimes by putting 25 cents in a piece of paper in our chocolate pudding, and sometimes a trip to New York to the Waldorf Astoria to meet people of the lineage of 
Carl Sandburg, the wonderful Midwest poet who had captured America's imagination during the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, Sandburg had written a book called Always the Young Strangers, and that has an ironic value because, as an example, I was one of those young strangers with curiosity for learning and for meeting important people. So my mother rewarded me by saying, we'll go for the day to New York by train from Philadelphia to New York, and we'll have lunch at the Waldorf Astoria as one of the uh, guests of Carl Sandburg, who was being honored at that time in the Poet Society of America. That weekend was such a positive, fruitful weekend of intellectual growth and opportunity to learn poetry and to learn the craft of poetry, which I discussed with Carl Sandburg, who said, identify the everyday things, focus on everyday people, They are a great source of poetic uh, inspiration. And I followed that, and I became a young poet and a young writer, which later materialized, as um, has just been mentioned into the book, Lucky Conversations. So in a nutshell, Carl Sandburg was my first famous person. Soon thereafter, Adlai Stevenson was running for president in 19... 52 against Eisenhower. And of course, he lost both times and he ran in 52 and 56. But I met him and I met Mercedes McCambridge, who was a um, winner of the Oscar that, that year. So Adlai Stevenson, of course, was surrounded by important, notable people. I later admired Adlai Stevenson when he countered the Russian representative about the invasion, and he said to that person, I am willing to be patient until hell freezes over. Yeah, uh, that was during the missile crisis. Exactly. So yeah. anyway, it's, it's all according to my mother, who was a teacher. She was a graduate of Germantown High School and Nor- Normal School, Philadelphia Normal School. She was a, a teacher in the Philadelphia public school system. And she took those skills and passions and wedded them upon her four sons and daughter. So this was a, this is the this was the beginning of a practice that she encouraged. All right, now let's. Uh, in, in your book, you say that your goal was to go to Harvard Law School, but you right. didn't. You didn't get in. All right. No, and I talked with one of my classmates. Just today, Hank Barnett, who ended up as president of Bethlehem Steel, one of my best friends at Yale Law School. In a nutshell, uh, Earl Latham befriended me. He was my professor at Amherst, and he was a lucky conversation. Right. And I went to him in grief. I said, gee, I didn't get into Harvard Law School. He said, well, Mr. Wolf, you can sit and contemplate your navel or feel sorry for yourself or you can go down and you can chat with Dean Tate at Yale Law School. I said, if I can't get into Harvard, how the heck can I get into uh, <laughs> Yale? And, and he laughed and he said, do you have $10 for a tank of gas? He had a bit of a rasp in his voice. I said, I do. He says, well, I've just called Yale. I spoke with Dean Jack Tate. 
He's waiting to see you at 11 o'clock this Thursday. So get your car filled with gas and get yourself a map and find your way to New Haven. He wasn't going to help me any more than necessary. But what he did was set up an appointment in Dean Tate after a 45-minute, very enjoyable one-to-one conference. Again, a lucky conversation. Said Mars, he was from the South, so he collapsed my first name from Morris, two syllables, to Mars. Mars, I have just one problem here. Uh, How can I even consider you when our applications closed 15 days ago? You're you're late. Lawyers can't be walking around uh, uh, missing deadlines. I said, well, Dean Tate, the only excuse I can offer is since I was a little boy, I had my heart set on going to the Harvard Law School. They've decided to turn me down. So I went to chat with Professor Latham, my poli-sci professor. He said I should come down and chat with you. So here I am, 15 days late. (laughs) He he laughed. He laughed. And, And I've always found that laughter and comedy and making fun of yourself can be a great um, asset, especially when you're in a tough, tough bind or a pickle. I said, as I was laughing, he was laughing. He said, well, you know something? That kind of honesty is really a pretty good quality among lawyers. We don't always find it that way. We find lawyers make up stories and stretch the truth a little bit, but your honesty is uh, refreshing. Uh, you'll hear from us. So I left it at that. I came back to Amherst. I told Dean Earl Latham of the experience I had. He laughed. I laughed again. Ten days later, or five days later, I got a nice letter from Yale saying, the Yale Law School is pleased to extend to you the opportunity to attend and study law here. And that made all the difference. That was like Robert Frost's poem, Two Roads Diverged in a Yellow Wood, and sorry I could not take them both, yet long I stood in the underbrush. I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And for me in my life, the road less traveled by, the unorthodox road, the the road of the unusual, the road that very few Uh, students would ever dare to take. They'd just accept the loss at Harvard and make the best they can, go to the next law school available. But I've always been unorthodox. I'm left-handed by birth. I'm left-handed by nature. I'm a contrarian. Mm -hmm. I I tend to be genuinely left-handed in seeing things from the other side. That's helped me in my law practice in having appropriately creative arguments. For example, in the Wallenberg case, where I argued... No, we're, 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 Morris, we're, we're, we're going to get to that. We're going to get right. to that. Okay, let's not get jump too far ahead in the story. No, okay, I'm trying I'm to take soaked. this... I'm, take, I'm trying to take this chronologically so the You just take it the way you want to take it. I can take it. take a deep breath. All right, now, so you graduated from Yale Law School. Correct. You said in your book, only in passing... Arlen Specter was the best man at your wedding? How did that happen? Yes, he was. Well, that was uh, not until 1965, after I came home from working with Bobby Kennedy 
after I came home from working on the Civil Rights Act of 64. I landed in Philadelphia by choice to start my private practice. I started briefly with White and Williams, an excellent small law firm, and Arlen Adams came bidding for me. He came to the White and Williams office asking for Morris Wolf. And so I sat for an hour in the conference room, and he said, I have a new approach to the district attorney's office of Philadelphia. I want it to be family-oriented and family-corrective. I'm not going to put a lot of stock on getting big convictions against bad, bad people. I'm going to aim towards correction. I said, that's exactly my cup of tea. He said, will you leave the private practice and come to public service? It's right across the street. I mean, this office of his, I said, indeed I will. Let me first talk with uh, Mr. Uh, Thomas Rayburn White and get his permission. And he encouraged me. And then I had a great opportunity with our inspector, both educating him as to what the law could be. I started the Take a Brother program of Philadelphia. Had never been done before. I went into the local high schools. I selected the most outstanding students and student athletes to work one-on-one with youngsters between the ages of six and nine. And uh, this one-on-one treat was uh, to model for them what good behavior in school can represent. Studying, doing homework, getting sleep at night, staying off the streets. And I got the stars of the 76ers to be our senior mentors. Chet Walker, who had majored in education at the University of Michigan, who later became a uh, Philadelphia 76er. Wilt Chamberlain, who had gone to Kansas, came back home to Philadelphia. I took the youngsters and to see his, his uh, outfit. It was very exciting. The kids got to know Wilt Chamberlain. The kids got to know Chet Walker. The kids got to know World Be Free, who was a uh, outstanding guard on the 76ers. And then I went to the local chapter of the Big Brothers, and they became my senior mentors. So Harry Nichols and his group of Big Brothers of Philadelphia were the senior mentors. Then Turner Glenn and his group from Benjamin Franklin High School and Massbaum and Dobbins and Frankfurt, they became the second layer. And then the youngsters were the six to eight-year-olds referred to my program by Judge Harold Green, an African-American judge of great, great integrity and dedication. We had 150 youngsters on my program. I did not get paid a cent for it, nor did I ask for a dollar. We had 150 youngsters on it, and 148 stayed out of further trouble, which was an amazing record of uh, non-repetition for youngsters. The program received from President Bush a Points of Light Award, one of eight Points of Light Awards. Those were volunteer awards for programs started by concerned citizens in the juvenile crime prevention field. So my real turn on, I was also a prosecutor, assistant district attorney. I 
prosecuted a number of crimes. I prosecuted uh, corrupt judges, uh, Ruth Marmon, M-A-R-M-O-N. I put her in jail for taking bribes and other judges. So this, so this, was, is, how, this is how you knew Spectre. This is how I knew Spectre, and uh, this is how Spectre knew me. I also started uh, Wednesday afternoon, which was a day when citizens could come in, complaint to the DA, people that were not being listened to. And so we'd, we'd talk to 12 to 15 citizens with gripes or uh, complaints about something that the law was doing wrong. And this way we learned how to correct whatever we were doing. We looked to citizens to help us become a better DA's office. It was a very enlightened period for the district attorney. We got public awards. We got national awards, got awards for programs that were, um, I wouldn't say nonprofit. What is the word when you do something for no pay? Pro Pro bono. bono. Right. All right. Now, now, now Spectre was the DA at this time, wasn't he? And wasn't... That's right. Now, let me ask you this, though. It was a stepping stone for him. Let me ask you this. It was a stepping stone for Spectre. Spectre had been an excellent student at Yale Law School, so he and I had a lot in common. We also had an awful lot in common. We were Philadelphians. We both happened to be Jewish, both happened to be practicing religious Jews. He was even, I would say, a little more practicing than I was, but it was was close, and we were both out to make the world a better place to live in. All right. Definitely. Now, the, what yeah, I, the other question I wanted to ask you, was Sprague there when you were there? Yes, yeah, Sprague was there. He was first assistant. He was kind enough to sponsor and arrange my bachelor's night among all the district attorneys. I got married May 15th, 1965, six, and that was the midpoint of my being in the uh, uh, DA's office. So, in other words, you knew Spectre and Sprague. And oh, yes. Why that's important is because you probably know this. You know, Sprague was the first House Select Committee on Assassinations Chief Counsel. Mm-hmm. So they oh, both had a connection to, yes, they did. To, to the JFK case. Now, Sprague was the first assistant to Spectre, and he had a very remarkable record. I think it was 72 and 2. He was a very effective prosecutor, okay, right. while he was there. Now, this is a good lead-in. Why don't you tell us, first of all, what was ASAC? Why don't you explain what that acronym sure. was? Sure. Uh, ASAC is and was a student-run program non-political, totally focused on fostering good relations between university students from around the world. The program was started in an effort, a successful effort, to repair relations between Germany and France. As you know from history, France and Germany had been involved in the Franco-Prussian War, 1870, to 74, the First World War, 1418, and World War II, 39 to 45. So the young people of these two nations said, my goodness, what can we do with our energy to replace war with peace? 
And the students of those two nations, 400 from one and 400 from the other, in 1948 started the first exchange using the universities and the universities' uh, business schools or economic faculty if they didn't have a business school, like, like Harvard uh, Business School, Wharton Business School, Tufts has a business school, Chicago Superb Business School, Stanford, and the same true in other... When I became the president of this program in the year 1959, we had 415 universities in Europe, and then I advanced it from 415 to 735 by bringing in the United States and Canada and Mexico. And I also brought in Ghana, Nigeria, Sierra Leone. Okay, now that's, I something, to, that's something I want to talk about, because the, you, you actually met Lumumba and Nkrumah right. when you right. were in Africa? That's right. I went to Africa with a mission to extend the program there, and by good luck and good fortune, and this is what I tell students of Lucky Conversations, seize upon these opportunities that fall in your lap and come up with a, a thriller of a statement to catch the attention of the important people. Here's the example. I get off the airplane at about 9 o'clock in the morning uh, in, uh, in Accra, Ghana, the right. airport, right. at the airport. And in those days, the airport was so primitive that there was no walkthrough in the um, uh, accordion-type things, those, those covered ways that you just get off the plane, and once you're off the plane, you're in a magazine of some sort, and you're, you're propelled to the airport, and you don't even see the light of day. You know what I'm saying. You, you, today's airport. Then, 1961, um, I believe it was August 1961, you have the bare tarmac, and you come down the stairs, and you hit the ground, and you're lucky it's either uh, ground with uh, grass and dirt or asphalt. So I hit the ground, and I took four steps, and I look up, and, and coming t towards me, of course, he was really aiming for the airplane behind me, but he was coming towards me at that moment on that path was President Kwame Nkrumah and his guest, Lumumba. He had been there for a state visit. Patrice, uh, Patrice Lumumba. Right, who had only three months to live at that time. Well, that's what I was going to say. You, you, you met Lumumba about three months before he was killed, right? That's exactly right. Wow. Okay. Now, okay. I've had some unusual luck. But then the way I stopped them in their tracks was I knew that uh, Kwame Nkrumah had gone to school in Philadelphia. He had gone to, uh, he had worked at the University of Pennsylvania washing dishes. But that I learned in his biography. But as, as he started coming toward me, he looked at me, I looked at him, our eyes met, and I just said, and I blurted out, Mr. President, 
I bring you greetings from Philadelphia, which is a bunch <laughs> of baloney. That was just an effort to stop. And that's what I call a showstopper. You've got to have a showstopper if you want to stop an important person in motion. Now, he was in motion because he was walking uh, Patrice Lumumba to his airplane uh, that was behind me to return to the Congo and his last three months of uh, leadership on this earth. Uh, Lumumba was a very quiet man. He was wearing a blue suit and brown shoes, and I thought myself, if I had position to say so, I would say, hey, Patrice, next time you come over, wear the black shoes with a blue suit. But I didn't say it. <laughs> Far be it from me. I had other missions on my mind. My mission was to get some money for the student program and get the student program started. So I blurted out this wonderful, Mr. President, I bring you greetings from Philadelphia. And he looked up. He said, uh, I started towards him. And of course, he had been a victim of assassinated attempts at assassination. So he also, the guards closed right in front of him, wouldn't let me near him. And he said to the guards, stand back, stand back, let the man pass, let the man pass, British accent. Uh, And I was able to walk up to him. He said, ah, Philadelphia. Then he starts name dropping. He says, ah, Philadelphia, um, Walnut Street, Chestnut Street, Mm-hmm. What brings you to Ghana? And I said, Mr. President, I've come to Ghana to take your students to America and Europe for training with business firms. And then I paused and looked right at him. And then, Mr. President, I will bring them home to you personally to help you lead your great nation. And both things were just honest as can be. First of all, he wasn't going to invest in a program that didn't bring returns to him uh, if his students were going to stay out and live in Syracuse or uh, Beverly Hills, California. That doesn't benefit Ghana. So the promise that I made after the hesitation was really an art form. I was 24 years old, but it was exactly right. He said, Ah, Mr. Wolf, tell me more about the program. How long do these students work with a business firm? I said, well, six months to a year, depends on the firm and the student and who selects them. And then he said, oh, Mr. Wolf, I must see Mr. Lumumba to his plane. Can you stop by Government House today at 3 o'clock and we'll have a discussion further? So I did exactly that. He saw me at exactly 3 o'clock. And his first question was, well, how much money will you give us? And I said, Mr. President, we don't give money. We give experience. And he said, that's fair. He said, that's fair. And he called over Mr. K.A. Bedema, G-B-E-D-E-M-A-H, his finance minister, who he just had to call him in from down the hall. He said, Mr. Bedema, we're going to need some cash. (laughs) We're going to need some money. How much money do you think, Mr. Wolf? I said, well, I think a couple thousand dollars to finance the first student's travel grants. We'll cover the expense of all the rest. We'll cover the uh, the rental and the salary. So he said, that's fair. So from that came the first uh, 20 students from Ghana. Then I went down the coast to Nigeria. I saw the finance minister. 
uh, his name was um, Chief. He was a chief of a tribe. Chief Festus Akodi Ebo. Festus, F-E-S-T-U-S, Akodi, O-K-I-T-I-E, Ebo, hyphen, E-B-O-H. And he was a character. He had on a cowboy hat, just like San Antonio, Texas, and uh, a white robe and feathers in the cowboy's cap. So uh, people had told me he's quite a character, but he was very bright. He said, well, how much did uh, Kwame Nkrumah give you? How much did President And I said, well, it turned out to be uh, $20,000. He said, oh, we can do better than that. We'll give you 40000 So they were in a kind of gaming contest. Yeah. So yeah. long story short, the program got off on a boom in Sierra Leone, Nigeria, with Festus Akodi Ibu, and with Ghana, with uh, President Ghana's uh, President Nkrumah. Nkrumah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, also... Now, now, this is a very interesting point, and the reason I brought this up is that, isn't this the reason that Kennedy wanted to see you? Isn't the reason President Kennedy wanted to see you was over ASAP? Yeah. Yes, it was one of the main reasons. Okay, go go ahead and dis- discuss that meeting with John F. Kennedy. Yes. Okay, I was introducing him to a group of visiting presidents of ISAC. In other words, the international meeting that year, uh, due to Bill Harmon of uh, Princeton who organized it, the ISAC international meeting that year was at Princeton under Bill Harmon of ISEC, H-A-R-M-O-N. Okay, more. I I beg to interrupt you. Why don't you spell out what that acronym means? Sure, I'll be glad to. It's French, and I had to speak French, German, and English to be accepted into the position. (laughs) And we didn't have, yeah, we didn't have any, uh, we didn't have any uh, Americans. And I was, by luck, someone who went to Germany on the exchange program to uh, Cologne just the summer before. Can you imagine? I was projected from a nobody who had been a trainee in Cologne the summer of 58, no, summer of 59, after my first year at Yale Law School, uh, projected into Cologne, came home, at the president's meeting in October, the president of the U.S. committee, Norman Barnett, put my name forward as the one U.S. candidate for international president, and I won. And I was yanked out of law school, so to speak, but on good terms, and I went back on good terms. But coming back to your immediate question, we go for AIESEC. In English, it stands International Association of Students of Economics and Commerce. Repeat, International Association of Students of Economics and Commerce. It's actually a French acronym, Association, means association, Internationale des étudiants, students, En sciences économiques et commerciales, sciences économiques and commercial. 
uh, in Europe, they call economics sciences économiques et commerciales. Mm-hmm. So you put it together, Association Internationale des Etudiants en Sciences Économiques et Commerciales. Okay. Now, let's get back to your meeting with JFK. Okay. The meeting with JFK had two levels of importance and two different times of meeting. One meeting was on the explanation of the constitutional basis of the Civil Rights Act of 64. There had been quite a discussion and fight in the Justice Department as to what to place the... Let me back it up. For, for us to have any value to the government, us being the Justice Department, we have to pass on acts of Congress and say whether they're constitutional or not. And if they're constitutional, on what part of the Constitution do we judge that they are constitutional? Now, the word constitutional means, is it constitutional? Is it right? Is it legal? Same things that are going on today with the arguments with Trump and his uh, people and the behavior, which I will not go into at this point, but which I will go back to what the president wanted to talk to me about. He said to Bobby Kennedy, I understand you have something of a argumentative and litigious, bright, new assistant. And Bobby said, yes, I do. And he's got some good thoughts on why the, the uh, controversial new law should be based on the Commerce Clause rather than on the 14th Amendment, equal rights. Bobby said, it looks from every appearance that it should be the Commerce, uh, the, um, the Bill, Bill of Rights. Uh, it's civil rights. But Morris says no. Morris says it should be based on Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3. And the president said, well, what's that? Because I was sitting right next to Bobby when he was in this conversation with the president. He says, well, that's the Commerce Clause. And it's not a very sexy clause, but it's one that has some track record. And so when the Southerners come and try to kick the law into the ash can, they won't be able to. There'll be a past precedent. And even they, the Southerners, respect past president. And the president said, well, what's the past president? This is on speaker. He said, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 is the Commerce Clause, and it says that um, certain laws that affect the highways and the seas are constitutional under the Commerce Clause. And he said... Morris has put in front of us a particular case, Hammer versus Dagenhart. And the president said, well, what's that? He says, that's where the Congress passed a law prohibiting child labor. In other words, companies could not hire and maintain and pay students who should be in school. And they had age 16 with the possibility of age 14, but nothing less than that. And so the president said, and so this law comes like a donkey right behind it? Exactly. He says, okay, then put the findings up at the top where the where you're writing for the Congress. By the way, the Justice Department wrote all the laws for the Congress that were of any importance then and now. 
Right. And what, what wasn't Katzenbach the point man on that? Katzenbach was the deputy attorney general. It was Bobby Kennedy, then Katzenbach. Katzenbach was the one who urged the Bobby Kennedy to have the president speak to me directly. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, because I thought Katzenbach was a guy who was his point man on civil rights. He's the one who you described. He went in your down book. to Alabama. Yeah. He stood in the door with uh, right. With, with Wallace. Uh, we, we organized that too from the couch. In right. The That's another Senate. interesting thing in your book. Yeah. You talk yeah. about that incident, that famous incident with Katzenbach versus Wallace, and you're yep. in the office, and and you what was it? You and Bobby were stage managing that. Exactly, exactly. And we gave Wallace uh, just 15 minutes or so to stage his um, acrobatics. He got 15 minutes of stage time, and then you're off. And Mr. Uh, Governor, we're very serious. You're off and done. 15 minutes, we'll give you a three-minute warning. He's fine. <laughs> he was acting. He was doing, uh, showing the people of Alabama, look, I can stand tall for uh -huh. segregation now, segregation then, segregation forever. Right, right. That now, this law, you, this law that you helped write, okay, I think you right. said in your book, the, the part of it that you specialized in was Article 2. Right. Yeah, which, which dealt with... Public accommodations. Right, right, that's accommodations, M meaning like hotels, you know... Right water fountains, okay, parks, stuff like that. And that's... And Restaurants that's, and, and five-and-dime stores and their lunch counters. Right, right, okay. Which was now, very touchy because it was very touchy because they were letting people come in and buy sweaters and, and socks and uh, other items uh, that were in interstate commerce, but they weren't letting them sit at a lunch counter. Right, and, right. They won't even let King sit at the lunch counter. He got That's he correct. got thrown out. Okay. Oh, they were no, they were they were right down the middle. In other words, they were right down, now, right the, down now, the line. Now, now, also, I think you mentioned in your book this stood up to a court challenge, which I believe it was Katzenbach. Okay. Right. Uh, in nineteen against Atlanta hotels or something like that. Was correct. That correct. Right. And Katzenbach was listed as the um, uh, prosecutor of the case. I was right under him. I didn't have a name, but uh, what by that I mean uh, Katzenbach uh, and Kennedy were both used as names as plaintiffs in cases. And and it was it withstood the challenge, right? Withstood the challenge. That's right. Right. And that's what we consider to be. A huge success because when the law gets respected instead of jerked around, it begins to develop respect and people just go along with it uh, being part of the law. Like so, so we we have a guy on the phone who helped write the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Okay, that's good. Now talk about the other meeting with Kennedy, which was about the student exchange program. Excellent. This was a very happy moment. I was working in the Justice Department, and Bobby Kennedy became very friendly and very nice, very wanting to repay my devotion to late hours and such. And so he learned that um, my 
organization after its meeting at Princeton was coming to Washington for what we called a study tour. They got to meet, they got to see the different institutions, the Lincoln Memorial, uh, the Jefferson Memorial, etc. And when Bobby learned they were coming, he said, well, why don't we have a party for them here at the Justice Department, which I thought was awfully nice. And I think that was just to cater to me in a nice way of thank you, your uh, time, thank you for your uh, stiff, stiff, I don't know any other word, thank you for standing your own ground on your being a young lawyer on legal positions. It benefits us if you are who you can be. So he said, Morris, um, I'd like to repay it. Why don't we have your student leaders who are coming to see the sites uh, come for a party at the Justice Department? I said to myself, that couldn't be nicer. And uh, it was a part of Bobby Kennedy, which was beautiful because parts of him are very tough. And he was uh, under a lot of pressure. Anyway, he hosted a lovely afternoon party, and it was written up in the Washington Star. In those days, we had morning papers and afternoon papers. So this was a scoop for the afternoon paper. Attorney General, Attorney General Kennedy hosts foreign students, and they were interviewed left and right because reporters were given free reign, and people were very relaxed. President Kennedy got all the afternoon papers. He was an avid newspaper writer, uh, reader, and he read them with speed reading as a, a, as a, as a real approach. And he says, huh, what is this? This is international affairs. These are students coming here from Ghana, from Ireland, from Australia, and there's a guy at the Justice Department who's coordinator, the Morris Wolf, who's this? Oh, that's Morris Wolf. That's the guy who came over here a week ago on the um, civil rights thing. Why don't we have them over here since I'm in charge of international? Now, this was a case of sibling rivalry and one-upsmanship. Uh, JFK did not want himself to be outdone in the international field by his younger brother, who was supposed to do uh, civil rights and civil and domestic matters. So he says to Mrs. Uh, Lincoln, Evelyn Lincoln, his, his loyal, fabulous, brilliant secretary, get in touch with this Morris Wolf. And that was interesting, too, because the day had ended and they had to get me at home. Get in touch with this Morris Wolf and have him bring these international students over to see me tomorrow morning. Now, the president had an international meeting. I wish I could tell you it was on the Warren Commission, but it wasn't. <laughs> but he had, he had an international meeting scheduled on the sinking of the thresher to the bottom of the ocean. But he was going to put that aside an hour and a half so he could meet these students. So he said, have Morris Wolf in my office by 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. And sure enough, Evelyn Lincoln tracked me down. She said, Mr. Wolf, I said, yes. She said, the president would like to see you at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, can you make it? I said, well, the president, of course I can make it. And he said, she said, come in this interest and that interest and we'll get you in. There'll be a pass for you there. So my friend Steve Usum, Admiral Usum, 
been my friend for 80 years, 85 years, 83 years. Let me see. He says, Wolfie, you had a nickname for me. You've got to have a good outline if you're going to see the president of the United States. So have an outline of all the questions about the ISEC program, which is what he's interested in. Well, we had a wonderful conversation. He comes out a door and he eases into his rocking chair and you can see pain across his face. And he's rocking a little bit. He's the, so, so tell me about this ISEC program. I said, well, Mr. President, it's a little bit like the experience you had in going to the London School of Economics uh, as an exchange student. He smiled. He said, yeah, I, I see what you're getting at. I said, but our students go and they work for a company like IBM or DuPont or smaller companies, and et cetera, et cetera. And, so, uh, and they're all in the Rose Garden waiting to meet you because I had them assembled there. So I met alone with the president until about 7.35, and then he opened the door to the, uh, the garden, and um, there are the students, and they're all dressed in their national uh, plumage, so to speak. I mean, the, the uh, uh, Africans look great, their white robes and their colored robes and their Ghanaian robes and such, which are Kenti cloth, uh, green, orange, uh, and gold. And um, it was a fun time. The Irish delegation bought a bottle of Irish whiskey. So David Powell, the president's um, personal assistant, had appropriated... David, David Powers. David Powers. You're right. You got exactly. David Powers, um, whose main job was to keep the president relaxed. Um, he grabbed the... Uh, whiskey. Uh, President Kennedy saw him do it. He said, now wait, wait, David, David, that's, uh, that's presidential material. <laughs> so he did. He reappropriated it. And uh, no one argues with the president. Uh, so, um, and he said some very, very profound words to the students. He said, what you're doing today here is building peace for the future. By your coming here to see how we live with both our faults and our strengths, let you know we are a friendly people and we want to help make a better world. And then he said these profound words. He said, many of you will be important leaders in the world long after the Kennedys have left Washington. He had no idea that the stay would be shortened yes. in any way. He, he thought uh, there would be dynasty first himself, right. Bobby, and then Teddy. Right. And uh, that's how they thought, which I admire. That's uh, positive thinking. And um, I stood right behind him, and the pictures show it that uh, – now, uh, now I, hope, I hope you'll do me one favor. As somebody uh, in your um, control of, of academia, um, if you can ask for the photos from that day, just in case, whether you use them or not, doesn't matter. But um, uh, the day of the ISEC International student visit with President John F. Kennedy, led by their student leader, 
Morris H. Wolf. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll see what I can do. Sure. Now I think, but what I think a lot of people who are listening to this show would like to know, and it's it's in your book. All right. How did you ever get the job of Bobby Kennedy in the first place? Good question. Of course, I was at the Yale Law School. A teacher there, I told you that I was um, irregular or uh, a man of my own beliefs and such. Anyway, um, I wrote an article during law school on the U.S. Supreme Court. I've always been fascinated. And the article was on... Uh, Justice Black and Justice William O. Douglas, and they were the progressive wing of the uh, court. They helped to write Brown v. Board of Education. They helped to write uh, all the uh, progressive ones. And as a result of the particular experience, Fred Rodell, a very acclaimed international constitutional lawyer, had helped me write an article, which he then helped me get published, Kindness. Teachers can have an aspect of kindness and developmental encouragement. He helped me write an article called The Myth of Sisyphus, Black and Douglas on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, He got that article published in the New Jersey Bar Journal, which was a high honor, and he put down the following quote as the title. This is winter 1963, if you look it up. Uh, The quote from Fred Rodell, R-O-D-E-L-L, says, um, this is one of the finest pieces of student writing that I have seen in my 28 years of teaching. And as you can perhaps imagine, when you can present an article like that to a Robert F. Kennedy and you have two professors from the Yale faculty contacting him, one Myers McDougall from Mississippi and the other Fred Rodell from Connecticut, um, that you're attending a very healthy school that takes a genuine interest in the futures of their students. So I was one of um, five graduates nationally, sort of like a um, uh, honored as the Attorney General's Honors Program. So there were five students on the Attorney General's Honors Program. I was fortunate to be one of them. And um, in Bobby Kennedy's office was Norbert Schley, S-C-H-L-E-I, a very nice, decent, and very bright um, graduate of Yale Law School and a protege of Myers McDougall. So you can see the lineage of support that went right down the line. Of, uh, and that's how things happened. All right. Now, I think you I think you may you're talking about this article. It couldn't be in the winter of 1963, could it? What was the publication yes. date? That but was, I, it, I thought you went to work for Bobby in 1962. 
true, but it takes a while to get stuff published. You can get. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. <laughs> they they just delayed it till then, and that was a good time to have it because that's when the Supreme Court was battling between um, uh, Black and Douglas against the Frankfurter Wing, and mm-hmm. the Frankfurter Wing was Harvard. Uh, Black and Douglas Wing were Yale. Now right. it shouldn't be that petty, but uh, uh, sometimes c- can be. And I just picked the uh, the right law school to go to. And as I was talking to one of my classmates today, um, that's a classmate from 1963, Hank Barnett, former president of Bethlehem Steel, unpretentious and incredibly bright. Uh, and and decent, decent. You know, I think we underestimate sometimes the whole role of decency and kindness. And uh, well, well, speaking at, of decency and kindness, because there's another thing that you were involved in that was very, very important, and that is you, you were also involved with the gaining of the ransom in order to get the prisoners out of Castro's jail in Cuba, the guys who were incarcerated because of the Bay of Pigs invasion. You yeah. and a gentleman named Louis Oberdorfer, okay, mm-hmm. went around to these pharmaceutical companies, right? Isn't that how it worked? Yes, it was. He was the head of the tax division, and I was in the more general small office of the Office of Legal Counsel. But he came up with the ingenious idea, as a tax expert that he was, to give all different companies, Bash and Loam, uh, uh, Roman Haas, etc., uh, Lilly. Look, you don't want to use these items. It was very much, a, you'll pardon the pr- uh, expression, a Jewish merchant thing. It, look, Dre, you don't need this crap. We'll give it a value and give it away. But it was just good diplomacy, good merchandising. They had nothing to lose. They got a future promise from the government as needed and it was done quietly as it needed to be and it did result in the return of prisoners so that um, something wonderful happens when two parties reach a point where they are willing to swap A for B mm-hmm. and A doesn't really mean anything to them and B doesn't mean to the other guy and they could care less and it just it <laughs> happened. Okay, so civil rights, the exchange students, and, and and ransoming the Bay of Pigs prisoners. But there's actually something else in your book that I think our audience would be very interested in. After JFK was killed, you describe the Department of Justice of being like a morgue. Uh, Bobby Kennedy was essentially like a zombie at this time. And so you you asked to be transferred and it was Bobby Kennedy who recommended you to John Sherman Cooper, right? Yes. Who was a senator from Kentucky, right? That's right. And so he passed you on to John Sherman Cooper, not having any idea <laughs> of what was going to happen, because it turned out from your book, from your book, it looks like John Sherman Cooper was, to say the least, kind of violently opposed to what the Warren Commission was going to come up with, right? It appears that way, that he feels that the work was not 
professional or accurate, but it was not his place to make a big fuss. He felt that his appointment as a senator was more ceremonial than investigative. According to you, he made these rather vocal objections to you about about what the heck was going on with the Warren Commission. That was very private. Keep in mind that he was a brilliant man, he was an integrity man, and he was devoted to the truth, but he often wanted to verbalize the truth in a limited circle, only because at times he did not believe the truth would resolve things differently. But everything I've said before, I stand by. In other words, he was very unhappy and uneasy with the findings. He thought they were superficial. I I stand by what I said. This is what you write in your book. This is on page 107. I was chosen by Senator Cooper to be his legal counsel during the Warren Commission hearings to finding, devoted to finding out the truth and full commit and, and full circumstances of the murder of John F. Kennedy. I was also chosen to serve as Cooper's constitutional law advisors. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, th- this is obviously the reason that he felt that he could confide in you. Now, one of the most interesting things that you write in your book is that President Johnson was privately telling Cooper, okay, let me quote again, do your country judge thing, get the facts, make a case for two killers, gunfire coming from both directions. That's on page 109. So on the one pole, you have Johnson telling Cooper to find out who the two, quote, two killers are and the gunfire from two directions. But then a couple pages later, you say, that Johnson contradicted that in telling Warren to go ahead and get the thing over with before the election. That, is, that, is, that, is that basically fair to what you're saying? That's fair, and that's totally as it is. And it's not, um, Johnson was capable of inconsistencies uh, as part of his whole political makeup. Right. Okay, so in other words, he's like, he's like would you say he's playing Cooper? Yeah, I'd say he's flitting around. Yep. I think he's, he's yeah, playing Cooper in terms of hoping he can evoke two different positions from him and still put the imprimatur of John Sherman Cooper's name on it. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I would say that's, that's pretty much what you're saying. Now, right. here, here's how violently Cooper was. And by the way, and I have to say this, because until I read this, I had thought that Richard Russell was the most violent objector to what they were doing on the Warren Commission, okay, mm-hmm. the senator from Georgia. And he was. He was he was very opposed to the conclusions they were coming to based on the testimony of John Conley, okay, that, that there was a, there was no single bullet theory, that there was actually two separate bullets. All right, but here's what you quote your boss, Cooper, as saying about a meeting of the Warren Commission, quote, they are getting it all wrong. It is a whitewash, a rush to judgment. Justice Earl Warren is acting crazy and dictatorial, just Mm -hmm. like a banana republic dictator. 
He is not the moderate. I'm not done. I'm not done. I want to get the full quote in there. Okay. He is not the moderate and patient man I knew from within liberal and moderate Republican circles. Warren is not his usual calm and temperate self. He's acting more like we are not to ask questions, but be puppets on a string. I was selected as one of two senators to deliberate as a member of the commission. I want to get down to the facts. How many were involved in financing and backing this moment in our history? So he was that violently opposed to what was going on? Right, and he wanted to get to the truth. He had nothing to gain from anything other than the truth. What I say there, I stand by, and I think it's an accurate statement then of what I, an accurate statement now. I'd, I'd go a couple steps further just to let you know <clears throat> we had so many of these close conversations, and partly they were close because we were driving in a Fiat 600, which you may or may not know is one of the smallest Fiats that you can have, and I didn't buy it with Senator Cooper in mind. Um, uh, I inherited Senator Cooper as part of my um, uh, package tours or whatever, non-paying taxi fares. And I was delighted to listen to his ruminations. And he was the kind of person you listen to where he'd be silent for a while and then he'd suddenly erupt with something like he erupted with that, they're getting this thing all wrong. And you could sense he was acting like um, a well-trained lawyer who was... Uh, Which he was, by the way, right? Yes. Mm. Yes. Well-trained, well-disciplined, and well-gifted. I mean, if you read his text on the um, hearings in Vietnam and such, his effort to end the, the war in Vietnam, along with Frank Church, clear and uh, just very um, scholarly and very direct. Michael, the man who later became head of the FTC, who had been Magnuson's chief, Michael Perchuk, P-E-R-T-S-C-H-U-K, is the one who first let me know that a position had come open on John F. Cooper's staff. And Perchuk had gone to Yale Law School two years ahead of me and was now Warren Magnuson's. Incidentally, a fact that you might like to know, they were considering Magnuson as one of the two lawyers for the commission, but then decided Cooper and uh, Russell. For some reason, they were willing to take two Southerners, Kentucky and uh, Georgia. Uh, Georgia. All very interesting. Of course, then on the civil rights committees, we would have breakfast with the civil rights, civil rights eight, and the ones who were conjuring on the civil rights of 64 and Title II and, and such public accommodations uh, included um, Kekel, K-U-C-H-E-L of Michigan, Cooper of Kentucky, uh, Magnuson of Washington, Joseph Clark of Pennsylvania. Yeah, you're, talking, you're it, talking about the civil rights stuff, right? That's right. That's different. I know your main concern is Warren Commission. But as far as my being a student of legislative history and a student of constitutional law, 
I sat in on those breakfasts. I sat right behind my senator and mm. uh, sometimes sat right at the table. And there were guests. Warren came occasionally to those meetings as well because he had a lot to say about constitutionality. He still had guilt feelings about the Korematsu case out in California. That yeah, that, that's the first. Japanese internment. Yeah. Right, right. All right, let, 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 let me continue with, with, with another quote here, because okay. I, I, I had never seen And In fact, if it wasn't for your book, I don't think we would have ever known this. Well, then that's a valuable book. I'm glad you <laughs> it. I hope okay. your listeners there, are there's listening. There's a nice plug for you, okay? All right, the, quote. Tell the it, listeners the title of the book and where they can get it. Lucky Conversations at Amazon. That's where I got it from. Excellent. How much did they charge you? I think it was fourteen ninety five for the paperback. Well, I'll get it reduced to seven. Anybody who buys it for fourteen, I'll get it down to seven. I, I have a right. subsidy program. All right, let me quote again. Sure. This this single bullet theory is phony. Now listen to this sentence very carefully. Everyone on the commission, including Senator Russell, and get this, Jerry Ford, believe it to be a clever, even ingenious cover-up invented by Arlen Specter. Okay. All right. Now, I don't see how it gets. I never even heard Richard Russell say that. Okay. That Jerry Ford. And by the way, let me tell you, Morris, I don't know if you know this, but in the Oliver Stone film, JFK Revisited, which Oliver directed and I wrote the screenplay for, Jerry Ford admitted to the president of France, this Valerie Giscard d'Estaing, this very same thing. That they knew that there was an organization behind the assassination, but they could never find out who it was. This is the only other place, your book is the only other place I've ever seen where Jerry Ford admitted that he knew the single bullet theory was a pile of sludge. So that's that's one of the reasons it's so valuable. Okay, I, I've never seen this before anywhere. And by the way, by the way, whatever happened... To John Sherman Cooper's book, I don't know. What you said you said at the end of your at the end of your chapter on Cooper, you said you talked to him. I guess you talked to all these people before they die. You know, Jackie yeah. Kennedy, Patrice Lumumba, uh, John Sherman Cooper, <laughs> and he right. said he was working on a book. Lots of people work on books that never get finished. Right. So, so I guess that never got that never got completed. Yeah, All right, so any... so that's that's your chapter on Cooper. Now mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about Jackie Kennedy, who okay. you met many years later. This is when you were, correct me if I'm wrong, you were an attorney at a New York City law firm, and you Late. saw her walking around in Central Park. Mm-hmm. And so and I seized upon the opportunity. As right. I'm encouraging young people to do the same. See somebody important, think of something worth saying, walk up and say, and I just was able to say, Mrs. Kennedy, I admired so much the way you comported yourself as our first lady. Now, that's a winner. That's, that's, that's a comment which leaves you standing there with mouth agape. And then you can say, um, I had the privilege of working for your brother-in-law, Bobby, at the Justice Department. And she says, well, Bobby was my favorite. 
Just as they're in the book there, yeah. Yeah, you, you talked to her and you told her about your working in the Justice Department for the civil for the civil rights thing. Right. You said that was you a said, very easy, com- comfortable conversation. You said she ended up crying. Yeah, she, well, she teared up. Yeah, she she that and and then uh, you got her to talk about uh, that famous. If you were around back then, and uh, since uh, Morris is older than I am, uh, he he was actually around back then. There was right. a famous, I think, nineteen sixty one TV special about Jackie Kennedy touring the White House. Yes. It, was, it was the only time I've ever think I ever remember it was it was something classy. that Yeah. Right. And then you got her to talk about this about how she thought the place was a mess. Okay. Right. <laughs> when yeah. she got she there. She thought it was dowdy, dowdy, yeah. <laughs> and so right. she decided to remodel it. And then she actually told you who JFK's favorite presidents were. And mm-hmm. she decorated with, correct me if I'm wrong, it was Lincoln, Jefferson, and John John Adams. And so she, she decorated it with those people in mind, which I thought was a pretty interesting thing because, and she you know. Did. She, she did that, and I went back to see it. I saw her. On November 30th, 1993, as I quoted my book, and mm-hmm. my book is not in front of me. Right now I'm talking to you free and clear of uh, my books are in the other room. But it was such a poignant moment, and it was my birthday. And I said that in that first sentence that um, I was giving myself a birthday gift. My law partner went on to the office, and I went over to talk to Jackie Kennedy. And... Um, we became very close in the classiest sense of the word. Well, wasn't she working at a, wasn't she an editor at some book company at that time? She was uh, uh, E.J. Morrow and Company. Okay. I believe it's in the book listed. And she was uh, modest, reserved, very attractive, very feminine, lovely personality. One could see how John F. Kennedy was really charmed by her and her intelligence and classy. I mean, um, I won't say classier than John F. K. because that's not necessary, but just um, very, very classy. Let me let you ask the questions. I'll, I'll be quiet. Okay. Now, that's another very important person that you talked to. Now, you had a role in the I Have a Dream speech. Okay, the famous uh, mm-hmm. August 1963 civil right. rights rally in, in Washington, D.C., which was arranged by Bayard Rustin and mm-hmm. Philip Randolph. And mm-hmm. then they cooperated with the White House and Bobby Kennedy, okay, to pull off what a lot of people believe was the high point of post-World War II liberalism uh, in in the United States. But – in your book, you talk about this extraordinary encounter that you had with Malcolm X on the eve of that rally outside the Justice Department, right? Correct. He came out a door unexpectedly. I was getting ready to go to lunch with Larry Schneider, Marty Wagner, two guys who were lawyers on the Attorney General's Honors Program 
they were with the civil division when I was with the Office of Legal Counsel, which only had eight or nine lawyers. So uh, we were ready to go to lunch, and out comes Malcolm X, and you could just sense that he was uh, sort of jutting his chin like, uh, let me make some trouble here, some verbal trouble. And he pointed up to the uh, wordage above the door, and it said, Justice Department. He said, do you think that it's possible to get any justice there? And I said, I don't know. It depends on what you're looking for and how uh, modest and humble you might be in looking for it. I knew who he was, and I knew he was looking for verbal trouble. Um, And so I jibed with him a little bit. I said, it takes an effort. You can't just uh, do it in speeches. You've got to uh, work towards justice. And I said, look at the three of us. We're all Jewish. Do you think it's always been fair for Jews in America? And I sort of sidetracked him. And uh, and he sort of blinked because it's hard to argue. I mean, uh, both blacks and Jews have been uh, subjects of discrimination in different ways. And some in the same ways, universities. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I said, what's the book you have? And he said, it's the uh, U.S. Constitution and certain articles. I said, well, that's a great place to start. And we started talking about uh, a very interesting case which involved university, I think of Illinois, and having admitted a black student to classroom, but he was obliged to sit outside in the hallway while the white students sat in the classroom and it was knocked down as part of the civil rights. uh, Right. Very famous case. Yeah. Normally I remember the name of it, but it's one in a And so we focused on that. I said, that's an accomplishment. That's an achievement. And look, the team that uh, was there was half white, half black. So we're all in this together. And he really bought into me. He said, well, you're kind of different. I said, well, I'm just trying to look to the future. Uh, You're going to be, and you already are very important, but you want to be important based based on the things that you know to be correct. I'm reaching for that case. It's a something versus Illinois or Indiana. I know that. Anyway, we'll find it. But let's come back to your questions. I can okay. Be now you, what you were trying to say, of course, because Malcolm was really kind of radical. He was really out there, okay, and uh, a black militant, a black militant, etc. And he was trying to tell you that somehow laws would not make any difference, whereas yeah. you were telling him, well, yes, they can make a difference, okay, mm-hmm. you know. And it's the only thing we have. Right. And then, and, and that, and that's, exactly, yeah, let, let me quote it. Sure. This is what Malcolm said to you. Laws will accomplish nothing. You need power and violence. You cannot legislate human behavior. Equality through laws. That's a joke. Okay. That, that's what he said to you. You come back yeah, with, did. let me quote this. You need a legal framework for social change. Laws and lawyers can assist in the process. Discrimination is an insult. It's a slap in the face. 
it's unfair. The time to end discrimination has come. Okay, so you were kind of playing the progressive liberal, where mm -hmm. he was the the radical militant who was calling for an overthrow of the system. You were saying, no, you don't have to have that. You can change the system from within. I think that's great. I'm I, I like that chapter. Yes, yeah, that was very very interesting, and you proved to be at least a little bit correct because the 1964 Civil Rights Act did change things. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a very, very, very important law. In fact, Clay Rison, in his book called The Bill of the Century, says it was one of the most important legislative acts passed in the 20th century. And I, I, I tend to agree with that. So let's talk about another guy, a guy you actually went to the uh, March on Washington with, John Lewis. Okay. You actually Rison's name for me for in the notes that you're sending me just to remind me to go and get a copy of that book. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. Thank okay. You. John Lewis was a assistant to Martin Luther King. He was at the March on Washington. He was at the uh, the struggle down in Selma uh, at the, at the Pettus Bridge. He later became a congressman, all right, and you were pretty good friends with him, and you were, again, this is another guy you were talking to on the eve of his death about a problem you were having down there in Florida. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, with the hospitals, yeah. Okay. And he was a good troublemaker. By that, I mean, where uh, he believed he even had a term called good trouble, which he thought was famous, but... Um, wasn't quite as famous as it might have been. But I liked his spirit. I liked his uh, action approach. And um, we respected each other. We were honest. By the way, he, he loved Bobby Kennedy. There was a yes, special on Netflix where they interviewed him before he passed away. He couldn't stop crying when he was talking about Bobby Kennedy. He was literally mm. weeping, yeah, weeping on camera. Now, by the way, you, you say... In your book, you say he tells you they had me tone down my speech, okay, for the March on Washington. All right, but he didn't explain why, okay? The reason they had him tone down his speech was because he had a passage in his speech that said words to the effect, we will be like General Sherman marching through Georgia. And I think one of the sponsors... Uh, you know, uh, Philip Randolph or one of the or the other guys said, John, do you know what Sherman did to Georgia? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want that to happen again. <laughs> All right. He burned a path 300 miles long and 20 miles wide. You, do you really want to say that in, on national television? You know, <laughs> That's okay. what friends are for, to tell yeah. you not to do something. <laughs> All right, and so so let's let's wrap it up. See, it's impossible to go yeah. through the whole book because there's just, you got just too many people in there and too many interesting conversations. But let's wrap it up. And I know this is very close to your heart. Okay, you you filed a lawsuit in American courts against the Soviet Union. Okay, because there was a Soviet Union back then, mm -hmm. and this was over the death. Of a guy who's, although Steven Spielberg made a movie about Schindler, there was a TV movie about 
this guy, Raul Wallenberg. He was played by Richard Chamberlain in, in that film, okay, which was nominated for like eight Emmy Awards or something like that. Hmm. All right. Let and, me ask you this question because you, you have experience making movies. I had a contract with Millennium Films. They paid me $100,000, and they were in the process of making the movie and having me as executive director. Since you have some experience in making films, I want to get the film back on track. I think it will be one heck of a movie and have large national and international interest in the Raoul Wallenberg and his heroism in taking on the Soviets and being left in a Soviet prison for 39 years and then left there by Richard um, uh, John C. Roberts, who had a chance to bring the case back up. My federal case, here's my real question. I have a burning desire. If I can do this before I die 10 or 12 years from now, I want to see the movie made. Can you think of any movie house that might be willing to make it? The movie house that I had is very fine, very decent. Avi Lerner and his son, for some reason, they don't want to make it right now. I don't know why. Can you do me a favor and see if we can get this movie made? Okay, I, 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 I'll, what I'll do is I'll write you about it off the air. Okay. okay. All right. Sure. Okay, now... Roe Wallenberg, this is a very, very famous case, okay, which you were involved with on more than one level. Okay, no, you actually, I prosecuted the case. I'm chief counsel. Yeah, and you, but you also wrote a book about it. Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. Whatever happened to, right. Right. Okay. Raul Wallenberg was a Swedish diplomat mm-hmm. who was sent to Hungary to try and rescue some of the Jews, well, a lot of the Jews down there. Because what had happened is that the Germans realized that Hungary was switching sides, and so mm-hmm. Hitler sent in tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of troops, including Adolf Eichmann, to go ahead and ship out a lot of the Jewish population. Okay. Or massacre. Right. Or, right. right. So, Raoul Wallenberg was secretly working for the OSS as as a Swedish diplomat, and mm-hmm. he was trying to get a lot of these Jews out, okay, before the Nazis could go ahead and exterminate them. All right? Right, but now this, his, real, the, his real push when the U.S. government and the U.S. Um, people backed the idea of let's finance him as part of the U.S. War Refugee Board, official act of the Congress, and uh, finance him to go into to uh, Budapest, set up shop, and save lives. So it was a U.S. effort, and they promised to uh, back him up, but they, they, they didn't. They promised to rescue him if at any time that was necessary, but they didn't. So it's a um, it's a black mark and it's a great mark all at the same, which makes it such a great human story. It's a, well. Let, let me ask you this. Time. Let me ask you this. Yes. Because this is something that puzzled me. I didn't read your book. Okay, so I I don't know if you answered this right. question. Okay. The Soviets were 
violently, and that's an understatement, opposed to the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So why would they have Wallenberg arrested? They shouldn't have, and I, I have never figured it out myself. It was part of the emotionality of the war. Maybe we'll find out by making the movie and investigating the records of the Soviets. Uh, there's no real reason why they even captured him. Several opportunities they had to send him home. The uh, Swedish uh, diplomatic service uh, begged them just to send him home. He has nothing to do with uh, Russia or offending Russia, but way led on the way. That's why the damn story is so exciting. People will be sitting in their seats with their popcorn uh, asking, how does this make sense? So, so you, you don't know either. That's correct. Okay, and you've been investigating that case for thirty years. Okay, so. that's right. That's right. Okay. nineteen eighty-five. Yeah. So years. that's something I I didn't understand. Why would the Soviets, who hated the Nazis, you know, want to arrest this guy in 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 the first place? Because of course he was opposed to the Nazi regime, you know, right. in 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 Hungary. So you we actually were allies. We were allies actually, with the Russians. Right. Right. And that's another reason. At that time, before the end of the war, we were actually allied with the Soviet Union. Absolutely. So what you did is you filed a suit against the Soviet Union for the illegal detention of Raoul Wallenberg. Right. And, and incredibly, you won, right? Yes. I got a black judge who had been educated by my international law professor at Yale, who told my international law professor... I was out in practice. Tell Morris to cool his jets. I'm going to rule his way, but uh, he's got to be patient. So there was all kinds of intrigue. I encourage you to uh, get a copy of the book, and I will double your pay, whatever <laughs> you pay for it. And you're okay. a careful reader. And I'll tell you, as a movie maker, you will say, you're right, Morris. This needs to be a movie. And... We can go back to Avi Lerner, possibly. Avi Lerner has in his stable people like um, $72.0 net worth Clint Eastwood. Okay, well, they are a – they're Israeli, but they made their success. No, I, we, I, I know who Avi Lerner is. Oh, you don't have to tell okay, me who he is. Okay, I, I know good. who he is. But anyway, so that – you know, like I said, I can't, there's no way in the world that we can summarize this book in one in one show, because and and by the way, I just want to mention a couple of the people that we didn't get to talk about: Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, right, Moshe Dayan, and actor Ray Moland, who you met in a London bar. Mm-hmm. But anyway, anyway, like I said, most of the people listening to this show are interested in your relationship with the Kennedys. And that's that's what I wanted to cover, make the central part of it. All right. So thank you. Thank you so much, Morris. And I'm so glad I met you at the Pittsburgh conference. Well, I'm delighted. And uh, what I'm also delighted by is the focus on learning and truth and getting it told to the public that uh, really uh, I'm so happy to uh, people like um, Avi Krieg and other very devoted scholars. Let me do this before we close. 
Okay, I'm just oh, glad I'm glad we got you on the air. Okay, and I'm glad you got to talk about some of the. Uh, okay, you're going to send me a copy of the notes from today. Yeah, sure. Okay, great. I've enjoyed it. I appreciate your patience, and I hope I've been of value. If there's any follow up, um, just let me hear from you. Okay. And let's do that movie, darn it. Okay. All right. Thank okay. you so much. All right. Have a good week. Have a good night. All right. What a great, interesting show of American history, though. I'm, uh, do, do you believe this? Here's a guy who met with JFK twice, who worked for Bobby Kennedy, who wrote part of the Civil Rights Act, met Jackie Kennedy in Central Park, met Malcolm X, met John Lewis, and tried the Wallenberg case. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. I'll keep in touch by email and I'll... Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Len. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Talk to you later.